right, if you'd like to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as we continue our second Sunday in the book of Genesis, the second of many. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way into Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So we're in Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 3, and that's what we're going to be reading together in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a moment and pray. Uh, Father, we're here, and you are our God, and we are your people, and we trust that you are present uh, through your Son, and by your Spirit, you're with us, and uh, you are here to magnify the Lord Jesus among us. And so we pray that that would take place here this morning. Glorify yourself, magnify your Son, empower us by your Spirit, so that we might hear your word, so that we might be caught up in hearts that adore you and are affectionate toward you and that glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the justly famous psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, once said that those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And that seems important because we, we seem to live in a time where there seems to be something of a, a famine of meaning and purpose in the lives of many. Uh, One author and public intellectual gave his assessment saying that a great purposelessness has descended upon modern civilizations. People at large have lost any sense of the meaning or purpose of life. And if that's true, then it it shouldn't come as a surprise to us then that our society is, is, is marked by a growing sense of despair. Some have even called it a crisis of despair. In fact, a federal task force was commissioned in the U.S. in 2021 in order to address this this so-called crisis of despair, with part of its mission being, I quote, to reduce despair in places and populations where hope has been lost. Just fascinating. If you just take a moment to think about it. I mean, we, we live in the most prosperous, most comfortable, one of the safest times and places in all of human history with a multitude of enjoyments and pleasures and entertainments abounding all at our fingertips. And yet in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this prosperity, there's a growing crisis of despair. Perhaps psychologist Carl Jung was right when he said that man cannot stand a meaningless life. Perhaps we can stand almost anything but a meaningless life. And so this just begs the question, what are we here for? What's the, what is the purpose, the design, the significance, the meaning of this, of this life we've been given? And not just us, but for the universe as a whole. Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? This, this is a vital question for human beings to ask and wrestle with and seek to answer. It's a question humanity has been wrestling with for thousands of of years. I've recently, just this past week, encountered and witnessed this question being asked and wrestled with from people ranging from the likes of Aristotle in 4th century BC all the way up to Billie Eilish, her recent hit. What was I made for? As human beings, we, we long to know 
What were we made for? What is the end for which we exist? Why, is, why are we here? Why is anything here? And thankfully, we don't need to read too far into the Bible to find answers to that question. And Genesis 1 asks and answers these kinds of foundational worldview questions. In it, we find that life is not meaningless. Life is not aimless or purposeless. Instead, Genesis 1 tells us about the origins of all things, and it also reveals the ends for which all things exist. And thus, it infuses our lives with purpose and charges the universe with meaning. And so we're going to explore this chapter for two more Sundays, this morning and next, as we seek to see and understand this answer, the answer of our creator and designer regarding why we and all things have been made. So with that, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the words of our God coming to us through the pen of his servant Moses here in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, as we continue our time in Genesis 1 here, we recall that last week we saw in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 the initial creating work of God. Genesis 1, 1, it says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the initial act of creation. We saw that heaven and earth is is what's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism is a literary device that the Bible often uses, and it's meant to communicate the whole of something by mentioning its extremes. The idea is that God created the entire cosmos from top to bottom and everything in between. Then we encountered a problem because the initial state of the created order we saw was was uninhabitable, right? It was not conducive and hospitable to life and being and human dwelling. Genesis 1-2 describes the, the uh, initial state of the earth, as it were, as an, unhabitable, an uninhabitable wasteland. It was without form and void. It was cloaked in utter darkness, chaos. But then this morning, as we consider the rest of this section of Scripture, we find this problem... Resolved. Passage describes the the well-known and much argued about six days of the creation week. And uh, just to maybe let you down or, I don't know, calm your nerves, we're we're not going to wade into those kind of controversial waters this morning. Uh, We probably won't uh, at any point. But but what is interesting is, is the pattern of the days and how they correspond to the problem stated in Genesis 1 2. Right? In Genesis 1-2, the initial state of the earth is described as being without form and void. Okay, So this statement is meant to communicate that the earth was not yet a well-ordered place, as well as the fact that it was empty. Well, in the first three days of creation, we see the problem of without form remedied. Right, uh, The first three days of the creation is God giving form and shape to the earth. Uh, you can see this on the little chart here. On the next slide, perhaps? Maybe? There we go. That's the chart. I made it. And uh, you can see the first three, uh, 
uh, it wasn't my idea. Lots of people have made a chart similar to this. But uh, this is the, the first three days of creation are, are categorized here as, as forming days, right? Um, in the first three, there's form and order given to light and darkness, right? Day and night in the first day there. In Genesis 1-2, what did we see? There was nothing but darkness, but now there's an orderliness about it. There's shape and form given. It's not just utter darkness anymore. The darkness is contained to a particular time of day, but then there's also a portion, a, a time we designate as day, which is the time of light. In day two, uh, the, the, the waters are given uh, shape and form. They're contained as well. In Genesis 1-2, there was nothing but a chaotic, watery abyss but now the waters are, are contained on the earth and there's space given to the sky above. Before there was chaos, but now there's shape and form and order to the waters and the skies. Of course, day three is when the Lord shapes and forms the land. He orders the waters on the earth to all be gathered into particular places and then he calls the dry land forth and the dry land comes forth and then it's, it's in this there's order. Uh, given and, and this order is given to create a hospitable environment for humanity and animal life on the land as the Lord uh, fills the land with plants and trees and vegetation. Now there's order here. The Lord has formed the earth and the land to make it inhabitable. He's created a hospitable environment for his creatures. And so then on days four through six, the Lord turns now to filling the earth. You can see that there. The earth was not only without form, right? It was also void. It was empty, which was not God's ultimate intention. He intended for the earth to be filled with life and abundance and fruitfulness. And so now he turns to filling. And each of the filling days in days four through six correspond, they actually correspond to the forming days in days one through three. That is how in day one, day and night, light and darkness are formed. But now the Lord fills the night and, and the day with luminaries, right? Sun, moon, stars. The, the greater light there is the sun in verse 16, and it's made in order to rule the day, it says. And then the lesser light, the moon, is there created to rule the night, it says. And then also the stars are mentioned, almost as kind of an, an afterthought, it seems. But you can see here, day one was about the formation of day and night, and day four corresponds to this as it's about filling day and night with luminaries, and then day five follows the same pattern. In day two, we saw the, the waters contained and the skies and, and, and waters that were on the earth were separated. And just so, on day five, we see birds created in order to populate and fill the skies. And then there's also there's, there's sea creatures, fish and swimming things created in order to, to fill the waters on the earth. And just so, the skies and seas that were formed on day two are now filled on day five, and then day six follows the same pattern, right? Day three, land was formed. And as follows, on day six, animals, livestock, creeping things, beasts, they were all made in order to fill the earth. And then also on the sixth day, God, God creates his, his magnum opus, as it were. God's most prized and, and precious creation, the one set apart from all other creatures, humanity is made. Humanity is made, and humanity is made, it says, in the image of God. In other words, humanity is to, to resemble God and to represent God in the earth. And we'll talk a lot more about that next Sunday. But suffice it to say now, 
Humanity, being in the image of God, is here called to do what God just did in forming and filling the earth, right? Humanity is blessed and commissioned by God in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and they're blessed in order so that they will go forth and uh, in the earth and give further shape and formation to God's created order, to develop it and to cultivate it and to further form it and shape it for his glory, and in addition to fill it with more people. So in other words, to get married and have children and fill the earth with more and more image bearers who can continue to form and fill the earth as God's divinely commissioned vice regents. That's, that's, you can see there, this pattern of forming and filling is important here. But then also worth noting is that these days also share something of a common rhythm or liturgy about them. There's a little variation in the rhythm and liturgy here from day to day, but but for the most part, each day shares a, a common sort of rhythm, okay? So they each start with an announcement. You see this in the next slide. They each start with an announcement, and that announcement is, and God said, right? Day one, verse three, and God said. And day two, verse six, begins the same way, and God said. Day three, verse nine, and God said, and on and on it goes for days four, five, and six. They each start with this announcement, and God said. Then following each announcement is a command, right? Day one, verse three, let there be light. That's a command. That's a, that's a decree. God there spoke into the formless void and commanded light to come forth and it obeyed him. Day two, verse six is the same. Let there be an expanse. God says. That's a command. Day three, verse nine, let the waters be gathered. Let the dry land appear. That's a command. That's a decree. And these things obey him. And because they obey him, each command also follows with a report showing that the command has been fulfilled. And that report is usually, and it was so. Day one doesn't use those exact words. Actually, day one, verse three says, and there was light, but it means the same thing, right? The report is, it was fulfilled. And then each day follows with that same pattern, with the repetition, and it was so. Day 2, verse 7, and it was so. Day 3, verses 9 and 11, and it was so. Day 4, verse 15, and it was so. You can see a rhythm and pattern emerging here concerning the report. The same can also be said of naming or blessing from God. The days often contain some sort of words along the lines of, and God called, fill in the blank, right? So look at verse 5, day 1. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. He named the light and the darkness day and night. Same with day 2, verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven or uh, sky. In some of the days, though, God might not name what he's created, but he might bless it instead. On the fifth and sixth days in particular, instead of naming the birds and fish and land animals and humans, God, God pronounces his benediction over them. He blesses them to the end that they might flourish and abound and multiply and fill the earth. And additionally, days usually involve some sort of evaluation as well. There's usually an evaluation associated with each day, and the evaluation usually says, and God saw that it was Good. I love that, right? Interestingly, day two doesn't have uh, an evaluation, and day six ends a little bit differently. 
And it says that it was very good because there was a sense of completion on the sixth day. But the point driven home again and again throughout Genesis 1 is that what God has created is good. His creation is good. It's beautiful. It's delightful. It's worthy of admiration and enjoyment. It's good. And then lastly, the first six days end with a concluding formula as well. And there was evening and there was morning the first day or the second day or the what have you, which may seem odd to us, right, to have evening come before morning like that. But that's because that's the, the kind of Hebrew conception of the day. That's, that usually the Hebrew conception of the day was usually from sunset to sunset rather than, you know, maybe midnight to midnight or morning to morning as we might typically conceive. And also, interestingly, the seventh day, it doesn't have a concluding formula. On that day, God just, he, God comes to rest and there's no conclusion, it seems, which the author of Hebrews makes much of and is very interesting. And I think Pastor Brian is going to help us think about that in a couple of weeks. Now, why do we pay attention to these patterns, these rhythms, these, these uh, liturgies, as I called them? Why, why do we need to pay attention to these sort of repetitions? Well, because it's often in repetition the Bible that the Bible's trying to communicate to us something of certain theological ideas and doctrines, and that's most certainly the case here, right? Moses wasn't just writing Genesis 1 as an FYI, you know? Like, he, he's not just giving us information for information's sake. He's written and designed and ordered, very particularly ordered this section of Scripture with extreme care and concern that it radically affect the life and belief and hearts of God's people. The passage, this passage about our origins is meant to show us, meant to reveal to us something of what we're doing here. It's meant to show us something of why there's a cosmos. Why have we been placed within it? What were we made for? Everyone from Aristotle to Billie Eilish demands to know, right? Well, the words and patterns and days that are presented here, they help us understand some important answers to those important kinds of questions. And what those, you know, what might that be then? I'm glad you asked. First, it shows us that this world is here for the purpose of God's dominion. For the purpose of God's dominion. Now, there's no doubt that Genesis 1 portrays and reveals God as a great king, as the great king, in fact. And this, this would have been obvious to your, your average ancient Near Eastern audience because they would have known something about the, the authoritative decrees of kings, right? In that part of the world, at that time, if a king desired something to be accomplished, he merely had to speak the word. If, if a king decreed something, if a king commanded something, it ought to have been as good as done. If a king commanded for a, a palace to be built for his dwelling. Well, people better be getting to work, right? If he decreed for his subjects to bow down and worship him, they likely would have done it. If, if he gave word for wars to be fought or executions carried out or slaves to be imprisoned, his word would have been as good as done because a king's word carried that kind of weight in that part of the world in that time. However, no king, no matter how strongly he wished, no matter how powerful his kingdom, no matter, no matter how much authority he carried in his kingdom, no king was so powerful so as to have created light 
and skies and seas and lands and plants and sun and moon and stars by the mere utterance of his voice. No king had such regality. No despot had such authority. No monarch had such majesty that he might speak worlds into existence. There is only one king so mighty to say, let there be light and light to come forth. Only one king is so mighty to give his command for skies and seas and lands and plants and animals to spring forth into glorious existence and to have the report conclude for us, and it was so. But then not only that, the fact that God names things here also denotes his kingly authority. And that part of the world at the time as well, when you named something, it was a sign of your authority over it. And what do we see God doing here? It's several of the days in Genesis 1. The first day, he not only formed light and darkness, he, he named them. Day 1, verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called, he named night. Day 2, God not only formed space to make the skies, verse 8, he called the expanse heaven or sky. Day 3, God not only formed the seas and the land, but verse 10 says, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. He decreed the existence of all things and then he names them to display his kingly authority over all the earth. And this would have been particularly significant to an ancient Near Eastern audience because by and large, the, the, the Hebrews who were first reading this would have undoubtedly had neighbors who worshipped as divine the very things that God is creating and naming, right? The Hebrews, Egyptian neighbors and Babylonian neighbors and Canaanite neighbors and others, some of them would have worshipped the sun and moon. Some of them would have worshipped the seas as a god or some the land as a god. Some would have worshipped a god who was in charge of vegetation and plants. Some of would have worshipped animals and sea creatures and serpentine gods and, and all the rest. And many of the creation accounts of those people groups would have depicted the created order as having come into existence by some battle or conflict between these warring gods. But here in Genesis 1, we find asserted the supremacy of the one true and living God as the great king of all gods over all of heaven and earth. He has no rival. He has no peer. He has no equal. He has no competitor. No one is here warring against him because they wouldn't stand a chance. No, rather all things come into existence by his divine decree and are rightly placed under his kingly authority. Now, I know how such talk often sounds strange to our Western ears. And many of us, you know, pretty much immediately have negative connotations associated with words like dominion and authority and, and king. And some of us, when, when we hear words like that, we think immediately of, of abuse of power. We think of tyrannical authority. We think of oppression and, and domineering authority. And, and unfortunately... Because our world is now fallen, unlike the state of it in Genesis 1, those kinds of associations are sometimes justified. However, the, 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 the Bible would, would also remind us that there is such a thing as good and godly authority, and that good and godly authority can actually lead to fruitfulness and flourishing in life. 
Uh, David describes this in 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. He describes what life can be like for a people when they're under right, good, godly authority. Listen to what he says. He says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You see, he's saying there is a kind of authority that is benevolent and life-giving, that leads to flourishing and prosperity for those who exist under it. And that is the kind of rule we see being depicted here in Genesis 1, isn't it? Notice here how this sovereign king, this decreeing God, this, the dominion of this ruler is such that it leads to life and abundance. It leads to good order. It leads to, to the fruitful filling of the earth. Notice how he is a king who blesses those under his dominion. Day five, he blessed the birds of the skies and the fish of the seas. Day six, he blesses the beasts, not just the beasts, but the people of the earth. Day three, he, he provides his creatures with a hospitable environment and fills it with an abundance of food and good things and beautiful things. This, this God is a benevolent ruler. And when creation is rightly under his rule, as we see here in Genesis 1, when we are rightly under his rule, we flourish and abound with blessing and abundance and fruitfulness. The dominion of this God dawns on us like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morn, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. And thus part of what we see here is that we were made to live with God as our king. St. Augustine once so wonderfully put it, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were made to live under the benevolent reign of our God. We were made to flourish under his life-giving dominion and rule. And in fact, the, the reason, the very reason our world is so chaotic and so confusing, so defiled and damaged today is because we have rejected his rule and reign and chosen created things as kings. It's not what we were made for. We were made for God. We were made to live under his benevolent dominion. But then not only that, this world and this universe and we have also all been created, not just for the purpose of dominion, but also for delight, for delight. And that may come as a surprise to some of us. It seems to be an important emphasis in Genesis 1 as we see this repeated evaluative refrain, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Seven times we see some iteration of that phrase. In other words, what what we see over and over here in Genesis 1 is God create and form and fill. And then we see him step back to enjoy his, his masterpiece, right? So when God says, and it was good, it's, it's not God reassuring himself that he's done a good job. This is not God stepping back to make sure that whatever he's made is, is it's all right, right? And then giving his judgment. No, it's him. This is God delighting in what he has made. It's him enjoying and praising its beauty. As Gordon Wynnum puts it, he says, God is, is the great artist here, pictured admiring his handiwork. 
And in this, there's, there's an invitation for us as well. Listen, this, this cosmos is not the result of some accidental cause. Much more, it's, it's not the result of, of some conflict or war among the gods of the nations and imaginations of men. No, the universe is delightfully designed and beautifully built by a benevolent creator who himself delights in it and who invites us to join him in doing the same. And just think about it. God created ladybugs and sunsets and canyons. He created snowflakes and gurgling streams and apples. He's created sunflowers and angelfish. He's created waterfalls and catalpa trees and bumblebees. He's thought up and, and, and made the phases of the moon. He's littered the sky with numberless effulgent stars. He's painted a design on the wings of a butterfly and on the coat of the leopards and zebras. He's crafted intricate systems of lush forests, teeming oceans, rolling plains. He's carefully crafted just delicate, teeny petals on flowers. And at the same time, he's given rise to towering mountains. Friends, we see his artistry in motion. Every time we see a bird in graceful flight or we see the elegant movements of fish in water, every facet of this remarkable cosmos beckons us to enjoy the boundless beauty and to delight in God's brilliant designs. Perhaps no one has has put this more beautifully than St. Augustine in City of God. He, He goes off on the beauty of God's creation. Listen to what he says. He says, Shall I speak of the manifold and various loveliness of sky and earth and sea, of the plentiful supply and wonderful qualities of the light of sun, moon, and stars, of the shade of trees, of colors, of colors and perfume of flowers, of the multitude of birds all differing in plumage and in song, of the variety of animals of which the smallest in size are often the most wonderful, the works of ants and bees astonishing us more than the huge bodies of whales. Shall I speak of the sea, which itself is so grand a spectacle, when it arrays itself, as it were, in the vestures of various colors, now running through every shade of green and again becoming purple or blue? Is it not delightful to look at it in storm and experiencing the soothing complacency which it inspires by suggesting that we ourselves are not tossed and shipwrecked? What shall I say of the numberless kinds of food to alleviate hunger and the variety of seasonings to simulate appetite which are scattered everywhere in nature and for which are we not indebted to the art of cookery? How many natural appliances are there for preserving and restoring health? How grateful is the alternation of day and night? How pleasant the breezes that cool the air. How abundant the supply of clothing furnished us by trees and animals. Who can enumerate all the blessings we enjoy. Indeed, friends, this world is charged with the grandeur and glory and beauty by our God. And in that, it all testifies to His glory and greatness and beauty. When we behold the beauty and goodness of created things, friends, we're meant to to be caught up in rapturous delight, just like our God here in Genesis 1. And yet, even more, friends, We are meant to be drawn into delighting in the creator himself. One theologian once called beauty God's prophet. In other words, in in the beauty of created things, they serve as a prophet to us and that they preach to us something of the beauty and splendor of our God. In, In the created things, we behold something of the beauty 
and splendor of our God. They act like an escort, not merely leaving us where we are, but carrying us. They're meant to carry us to behold and delight in the one who created it all, which brings us lastly to the third and last purpose we're going to look at this morning, which is doxology. As we alluded to earlier, last week as well, Genesis 1 has been written as a creation account to uh, contest and contrast the several creation accounts offered throughout the ancient Near Eastern world at the time. And it should therefore be obvious to us that we're, we're being beckoned here to worship the God revealed here as the one true God. The, the God revealed here, we see, is not like the gods of the nations and imaginations of men. Is not like the gods of the seas, the gods of the lands, the gods of the sun and the moon and of plants and of animals. Those pathetic gods, Moses wants us to see, are not rivals or equals or peers or competitors with this God. This God is in a class all his own. He alone is king. He alone is God. He alone is creator, entirely other, holy, distinct from his creation. He alone, therefore, must be worshipped. But then there's more evidence for this, this doxological purpose of creation here in Genesis 1 as well. And one of them is, in, in fact, in the fact that creation here is depicted as a cosmic temple. It was uh, fairly common in those rival creation accounts in the ancient Near East for them to conclude with, with the construction of some sort of temple, and then whatever God was said to have created the world would then come to rest in that temple that had been made for him. However, in the, the biblical account here in Genesis 1, the entire cosmos is here portrayed as the temple wherein the divine presence comes to rest. Of course, we, we do know that instructions for the, the tabernacle come later in Exodus, and yet if you look at the, the construction, the, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 35 to 40, you'll see that the, the, the tabernacle was actually meant to be a small-scale model of the cosmos. It was meant to be a small-scale model of the created order as it's depicted here in Genesis 1 and 2. And what's more is this idea here of the creation account concluding with divine rest. Of course, we know from throughout the scriptures that, that God does not rest as we would typically conceive of rest. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't need a break. He's never taken a nap. He doesn't take a day off from being God. He doesn't need to. He's omnipotent. He's self-sufficient. He's self-sustaining. And so Genesis 2, 1 to 3 can't be communicating that, that sort of idea. But we're helped here when we understand that throughout the ancient Near East, that when a God was said to have come to rest, it meant that they were making their dwelling in a place. They were coming to make their abode, their home, in a particular place. And this idea of God coming to dwell in a place of being spoken of as rest is an idea we see repeated several times throughout the Bible as well. So when God's presence is spoken of in relation to the temple in Psalm 132, the psalmist there, he's, he's writing about worshiping God in the temple, and he says in verses 7 and 8 and 13 and 14, he says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. He says, listen, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. 
If you can see there, this, how the presence, God's presence dwelling in a place is spoken of synonymously as his rest. Of course, we know from other places in the Bible that God doesn't actually need a temple for his dwelling place because he himself fills the entire cosmos as his dwelling place, right? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 communicates something of this reality. When there the Lord, he ridicules the idea that he needs some sort of temple or tent for his dwelling. And he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Or we might also think of Isaiah 6.3, as the angels worship the Lord and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe you see here how the glory of God, which is referring to his presence, the presence that the Israelites were blessed to have dwell among them in a tabernacle and later a temple, the presence of God is said there to have dwelled and filled the entirety of the earth, the whole earth, the whole cosmos, the created order is depicted biblically as God's temple, as the place of his dwelling and rest among us. And this is furthermore why the divine image is placed on the earth. So in the ancient Near East, when a temple was built for a god, some sort of statue, some sort of picture, some sort of image of that god would be constructed and then placed within that temple. Well, here, God himself creates humanity in his image and places humanity in the created order as his image. Why? Because the cosmos is depicted here as his temple, as his dwelling place. He created humanity here. He created the cosmos here to act as a temple in which his presence would dwell. And what happens in a temple, friends? What happens inside of a temple? Worship happens in a temple. Communion happens. Communion with God happens. Service to God, worship of God happens in a temple. That's what happens in a temple. And so if what's being portrayed here in Genesis 1 is the construction of a temple in which God himself would come to dwell, with us as his people, then what are we being beckoned to here? What's the purpose of the creation of the cosmos and our place within it, if not to commune with and dwell with and worship and serve our creator God? Creation of the cosmos and of humanity in it finds its purpose in doxology. Friends, this is why we've been created. This is why all things have been created What were we created for? What were we made for? To commune with and to worship God, right? The the, the crafters of the Westminster Shorter Catechism knew this to be true when they themselves read Genesis 1 and 2. And so they begin their catechism. What is the chief end of man? What were we made for? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you were made for. And in fact, you will never know true joy, true satisfaction, true purpose, true resilience, true and ultimate meaning until that becomes your primary and ultimate purpose in life because you were made to know and commune with and enjoy and glorify God. It's what you have been made for. And friends, even more, this is what we've been redeemed for as well, right? It's what we've been redeemed for. Jesus says in in John 4, 23, that God is seeking worshipers. It's the ultimate reason God created us. It's the ultimate reason why he came to redeem us. 
Because while we have rejected this purpose, as we've rejected this delight, as we've rejected God as our king, he was not content to leave us in our state of disarray and destruction. And so instead, John 1.14 tells us that the divine presence came to dwell among us in human vesture. He took up his, a body as his resting place, and he came to live among us as Jesus of Nazareth. And while among us, the Son of God showed us what it meant to live according to our purpose. He lived the life that we ought to have lived. But then, as the only pure and perfect one, he actually died a sinner's death on the cross. He was rejected by God on the cross to take the penalty we deserve for rejecting God as our king. And in so doing, he won our forgiveness for rejecting God, as well as our restoration to the purpose for which we've been created, so that we might live in again God's presence and be satisfied by him as we worship him and glorify him and know him forever. That's not all. He also rose again on the third day because he not only came to reconcile us to God, but he came to launch his new creation project by which he will one day renew and restore all of his creation. For now, he's, he's ascended to heaven and there reigns over all heaven and earth as the only one true and living king, exercising his benevolent dominion over us as his church. But one day he will return to renovate the entire creation that he so delights in. In the beginning, he, he made all things good, but he will return one day to come and make all things new. And this cosmos will be his perfected masterpiece, the place of our eternal, unending communion with him forever. Forever and ever, friends, when Jesus returns, we will dwell here as his precious and prized ones, forever satisfied in knowing him and being loved by him. That is our purpose. That is the why for which you have been created, and it is sure. So in the meantime, because we have this why, we can bear with almost any how. We don't need to despair. We can know what we've been made for. We've been rescued and redeemed and restored in order to enjoy it forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Brothers, we come now to the table. Seal this word upon our hearts. As we look back to remember what Christ has done to redeem us, as we commune with him now as the risen Lord, and as we look forward to his return and the day in which we'll feast with him face to face, we pray that we would be assured of your divine purpose for us, that we would be assured of, of the meaning that you have infused and, and charged the universe with in creating us to live for your glory in all things. And so would you empower us now Strengthen us and nourish us in this meal to live according to the design and purpose for which you've created us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.